If you have a Bible tonight, please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When my dad invited me to come and preach in these opening meetings, he put an asterisk on the invitation and he said, son, I hope to be there. And so dad, I'm thrilled that you're here tonight and that the Lord is preserving your life and your ministry here at, Lake, or here at Maranatha. I'm at Lakewood. <laughs> Thrilling to open the word of God tonight. It's going to be an unusual kind of sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to preach a sermon that I think every true Christian should be able to agree with. In other words, tonight we're going to consider a fundamental of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When a loved one passes away, or when your own life is about to end, what truth are you going to cling to? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. When your own faith is shaken and you wonder if this Christianity thing is even true, what can restore your confidence? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. When your fight with sin is so long and it seems you've lost more than you've won, where can you find the hope to continue fighting? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. When the present is bleak and overwhelming and the future promises of God just seem so unlikely to be fulfilled, where can you find your hope restored? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You see, our entire faith is built upon the truth that there is a tomb over in Jerusalem that once belonged to our Savior, and that tomb is empty. And yet even as I proclaim these things to people that treasure this truth as I do, I recognize that there are many people that do not believe in Christ or in his resurrection. And because of the rampant unbelief that surrounds us all every day, and because we live in a time of deconstruction when so many are leaving Christianity as it were, I want to do something unusual tonight. I want to invite you to explore with me a world in which Christ is not risen from the dead. I want to invite you to explore a world in which there is no resurrection at all. And I believe there's a biblical basis for considering such an imaginary world together because on several occasions in Scripture, the writers will lay out these hypothetical situations for the sake of argument. There's a hypothetical in Hebrews 6. There's another famous one in Romans chapter 9. And it seems that Paul lays out a hypothetical sort of situation about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, and he invites us to consider the implications of such a world. Many in our day are trying to live in a world without resurrection. And so I want to spend a few minutes this evening exploring that world together. We will get to 1 Corinthians 15, but I want to invite you to consider this alternative version of reality, a world with no resurrection. A video featured by the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Science and Reason was trying to explain what we should all think about death. 
If you recognize the name Dawkins, it's because he's the most famous and widely published atheist alive today. And in this video on his website, the narrator, Stephen Fry, he says these words. He says, some people do not like the, do not like the thought of people dying and they don't accept it. They prefer to think that death is not the end of us, but that we might live on, perhaps uh, in another life on earth or in another place where people are rewarded or punished. But wanting something to be true is not the same as it being true. And he continues with these words. He says, death is a natural part of life. It makes sense for us to try not to be afraid of this, but instead to try to come to terms with it. When we do die, we will live on in the work we've done and in the memories of other people whose lives we have been a part of. Our bodies will break up and become part of the cycle of nature. The atoms that form us will now go on to form other things like trees and birds and flowers and butterflies. And so the only sense in which we live on, according to the atheists, is in the memories of those who loved us. Or in the, uh, at the atomic level in which our particles are recycled to form other delightful things like birds and trees. And so these authors say it makes sense for us to try to come to terms with this world of no resurrection. Well, friends, that's easier said than done. You see, this world of no resurrection is not particularly comforting during times of loss. A story is told about a mother that had bought into this humanistic view, this materialistic view, and she was given the horrible task of helping her own seven-year-old son process the death of his three-year-old cousin. Not believing in God, a resurrection, or heaven, she said something like this, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all come. Death is just a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when you see the earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that it's your cousin's life that is fertilizing those beautiful flowers. The little boy screamed. And he said, I don't want him to be fertilizer. I'm just going to go ahead and move these. But friends, fertilizer. This is the best that the world of no resurrection can offer. When you die, you return to the dirt. It's over. But if death is so natural, then why do we have to work so hard to accept it? Why, oh, when people try to live in this world of no resurrection, not only is their outlook hopeless, but believing that death is somehow a good thing, this seems to cut against everything that we naturally and innately know to be true. You see, the explanation from the mother to her son, uh, it didn't only seem sad to the boy, it seemed wrong to him. And yet the materialistic world of no resurrection is built upon the belief that death is not an enemy. In fact, the very ones who promote a world of no resurrection, because that would require belief in the miraculous, these are the same ones promoting a world that came about as a result of a different sort of miracle. They don't call it a miracle. They falsely call it science. But they believe in the miracle of macroevolution as an explanation for human origins. 
And yet within their miraculous world, a world with no resurrection, death is not a human enemy, but death is a good thing. Death is even a friend. Consider Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. He wrote these words about death and his origin of the species. These are Darwin's words. He says, thus, from the war of nature, from famine and from death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. He's talking about us. Darwin believed that death was responsible for producing humans. In fact, the entire system of evolution as a theory for explaining the origins of the human race, this entire system depends upon death, suffering, and pain on a massive scale over billions of years. You see, in the world of no resurrection, death is a positive. Death is a friend. But perhaps you object. Pastor Dave, that's a, that's a misrepresentation of Darwin and of the evolutionary theory. Well, in his excellent article, The Origin of Death, Dr. Werner Gitt quotes two famous scientists of the last century, and he quotes them along these lines, and I am not even going to attempt to pronounce this man's last name. We'll call him Vaughn. He says, if individuals did not die, evolution would not have been possible. And no new organisms with new characteristics could have originated. Evolution requires the death of individuals. Hans Mohr, another famous scientist, he echoes these same words. He says, no life could have existed if there were no death. Death as such was not caused by evolution. Rather, the death of individuals is required to ensure the development of the tribe. There is no way past this precept, this axiom of the doctrine of evolution. Without the death of individuals, there could have been no evolution of life on this earth. If we regard the evolution of life as a positive result, as the real creation, then we accept our own death as a positive creative factor. You see, in the evolutionary materialistic world, without without resurrection, death is neither an enemy nor a consequence. It is, the, it is rather the very pathway to our existence as humans. And herein lies the severe problem. On the one hand, the talking heads of the no-resurrection world tell us we must come to grips with death. But then these same people, who are very much just like us, they go to hospice care visits and they hold back their own tears. They're weeping at the funerals of their loved ones. When any of us comes to the funeral of a child, we don't take a moment to compose a sonnet about death's inherent goodness. We don't jot a few lines to the beautiful flowers that we will see next spring after they've been fertilized by the corpses of the dead. Nobody does that. Because we hate death as much as anyone else hates it. To make matters even worse, though, in a world without resurrection... Not only is our individual future bleak, but our together future as humanity upon a planet is just as bleak. You see, this world of no resurrection doesn't have space to believe in a new creation or a recreation of the earth. Rather, a world with no resurrection projects a future and final decreation of the earth. In a Business Insider article entitled, 
the sun will destroy the earth a lot sooner than you might think. Sundermeyer explains how the earth will eventually be destroyed by its own sun. She explains that every billion years, the sun burns hydrogen and gets 10% brighter. Eventually, this will cause most of the world's water to evaporate before the increasing heat causes the oceans to boil and ice caps to completely melt away. And four to five billion years from now, she says that the sun is going to burn through all of its hydrogen and then start burning helium. And after becoming much larger and much redder, the sun will eventually swallow up Mercury and Venus And ultimately, the author believes that the earth will be either swallowed up entirely by the sun or burnt to a crisp by it. And she concludes her article, but don't worry. There are tons of other scenarios that could wipe us out long before then. (laughs) Friends, is this really all that there is? Now, I agree wholeheartedly with the atheists on this point, that wanting something to be true is not the same as it actually being true. But is it really true that we're nothing more than a conglomeration of atoms? Is it true that we should learn to accept death as just a part of life? Is it true that when we die, our bodies go to the dirt and everything ends? Oh, but Pastor Dave, that's a straw man for the world of no resurrection. The atheists that believe in this, or even the non-atheists that believe in this, they don't really believe that life is meaningless. Is what I'm saying a straw man? It is not. Worldview tycoon Richard DeWitt says this. Evolutionary theory require us to give up the long-held view that humans are special. We have to accept that we are a result of a natural, not supernatural process, and that rather than being the apex of life, we are instead one type of organism among roughly 10 million currently existing species, all from an evolutionary perspective on an equal footing. Alex Rosenberg, scientist, novelist, philosopher who teaches across multiple disciplines at Duke University, in his book, The Philosophy of Science, he argues that Darwin proved that purpose to life and design for living creatures are mere illusions in the natural world. Therefore, he denies that life has any objective meaning or that our individual lives have any specific purpose. He freely admits this in his writing. He does not conceal it. He and his writing partner, McIntyre, they say, we may go on to infer that there is no meaning nor any real intelligibility to be found in the universe or at least none put into it by anyone but us. And as more and more people think this way, and as more and more people try to live their lives in this no-resurrection world where death is a friend and life has no meaning and humans are not special, should we really be shocked to see people uh, helping their grandparents end their lives? Should we really be shocked at the proliferation of abortion because, after all, this is just a clump of cells? Should we really be shocked to see people living their lives without hope and without meaning and without a sense of value or without direction? Are we really shocked by the spiking suicide rates? 
Are we really shocked by the opioid crisis and and alcoholism that has become so commonplace? We shouldn't be shocked because we've told people that their future is fertilizer. We've told people that their life has no meaning. We've told people that our life has no meaning and it may just get ended when the sun explodes and consumes us all. Oh, friends. That is the most viable alternative to Christianity in the world today. And people need to hear about the true world. The true world. The world of resurrection. The world in which Jesus has conquered death. And I want to tell you more about this world tonight. You see, in this true world, the world of the resurrection... Humans are the special creation of God. We are stamped with his very image. We are invested with incredible value. And in this true world, death was not required as a tool to bring about our existence. Rather, God created us out of his overflowing heart of love and and, and by his own glory and for his own glory. Instead of being a friend or a necessary good, Death, according to the world of resurrection, death is a consequence of sin and it is an enemy that must be defeated. In fact, Scripture tells us exactly this in Romans chapter 5. It's a consequence of sin. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Death is a consequence of sin. Death is also an enemy, Scripture says. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And since all of us deserve to die because of our sin, Jesus came to deal with our problems of both sin and death. In offering himself on the cross as our sacrifice, he paid the penalty that our sins rightly deserve. Scripture says that he himself bore our sin and his body on the tree. And then in rising again from the dead, Jesus defeated and conquered the grave, thereby solving the death problem for everyone who believes in him. You see, Scripture describes Jesus' cross and his resurrection in this way. They both solve the sin problem and the death problem for all who trust in him. And I lost my slides in the back, men. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 tells us that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And again, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So I wonder, friends in Christ, are, are, are you familiar with this rather common item? It's called a linchpin. It's a simple piece of hardware. It's a pin that passes through the end of an axle. It's designed to keep a wheel in place. And I'll never forget riding 
my old uh, lawn boy lawnmower that I inherited with the first house I ever bought, and I'm riding in my front yard, and all of a sudden I look over, and there's the front wheel of my tractor rolling away into the road where I live, and next thing I know, the front end of my tractor is down like this. A linchpin. It holds the wheel in place. Friends, when it comes to the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin. Without the resurrection, the wheels come off, the whole thing falls apart, and what is left is an unsalvageable wreck. And yet in the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament, after proclaiming the gospel as Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures, right after Paul proclaimed those words as absolute fact, he willingly stepped back and he explored a world in which there was no resurrection. He wanted to examine the ramifications of there being no resurrection in general and no resurrection of Christ in particular. What would this world look like relative to Christians? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19 answers that question. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if Christ, I'm sorry, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So what are the implications then, friends? If Christ did not rise again from the dead, what are the implications if there is no resurrection from the dead? Well, let's try to summarize them very, very briefly tonight. Number one, if there is no resurrection Christian preaching is empty, futile, and useless. In fact, if there is no resurrection, not only is Christian preaching useless, but Scripture is false and untrustworthy because Paul has just said in verses 3 through 4 that both the cross and the resurrection are based upon the Scriptures. The second implication, if there is no resurrection, then Christian faith is also vain. It is empty. You see, faith is only as strong as its object. And Paul doesn't think that the Corinthians should believe in something that didn't happen. And so if Christ didn't really die, Paul sees no value to faith that is based on something that is not true, even if it makes us feel better about ourselves. If Christ did not really rise, Paul says then the object of our faith could be called into question and our faith itself could be empty. If there's no resurrection, number three, Christian preachers are misrepresenting God. If there's no resurrection, number four, Christians are still in their sins. We already noted that it wasn't only the death of Christ that brings our forgiveness of sins. But if he didn't rise again, then his sacrifice for our sins was empty and it was not acceptable to God. You see, a Savior that didn't rise cannot save. 
A dead Savior cannot save us from sin, and that's why Paul says elsewhere that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is, Jesus was raised in order to secure our right standing before God in the courtroom of heaven. If there is no resurrection, then Christian death is final. Those who have already died but believing in Christ, these people are gone. They are lost forever. They're never going to receive another body in the future. They've returned to dust. Their story is over. If there's no resurrection, then Christians should be pitied. And Paul says they should be pitied more than anyone else. You see, Paul doesn't believe that if uh, the resurrection isn't true, that at least we can gain some inspiration from the thought of a new beginning. No. If Christ is not actually alive, Paul has completely wasted his life. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, then why have we embraced suffering and shame on account of him? Why have we entrusted our souls to him, battled against our sinful desires, sacrificially labored for the spread of the gospel, borne the scorn and rebuke of a fallen world, lost relationships that were near to us because we have been hated by all people for the sake of Christ? If we believe that our Savior is risen and he's really not, then the whole world should have pity on us because this grand joke is on us. And so, in rolling out this hypothetical scenario, is Paul saying that there is a possibility that there is no resurrection and that Christ specifically did not rise? Is it possible that we are, in fact, duped, every one of us here at Maranatha Baptist University, and that we are living our life in the wrong world? Is the world without the resurrection really the true world? You see, just because the world of the resurrection is a better and more appealing world doesn't make it the actual world. Paul answers this question emphatically in verse 20. But now, or we could translate it, but in fact, but in fact, Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of them that slept. You see, Paul moves from the hypothetical back to reality, and he says, fact is, Christ is risen. He's recounting reality. He's giving us history. He's telling us what actually happened. But maybe you're thinking tonight, Dave, I, I want to believe this is true. Emotionally, I want to believe this is true. But give me some reasons to believe, please. I believe, help my unbelief. Well, Paul gives us reasons. Look at the reasons Paul gives in verses 3 through 9. They may not be the sorts of reasons you're demanding or the sorts of reasons you would expect, but Paul gives reasons for the resurrection. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles." 
that I'm not meet or worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So you want reasons to believe in the resurrection. Paul has given us reasons. But I think sometimes when people say that they want reasons to believe in the resurrection, what they're asking for is like scientific proof. You're seeking like a a geometric proof, some sort of syllogistic reasoning. You want some sort of maximal uh, evidence. But one author cautions. He says this, there would be no way to empirically prove that a miracle has occurred since a scientist would have to assume no matter what that no natural cause has been discovered yet. If there actually had truly been a supernatural miracle, modern science could not possibly discern it. You see, you can't prove a miracle in a laboratory. And so if you're looking for those sorts of reasons, you're not going to find them in God's world and you're not going to find them in the scripture either. However, this does not mean that no reasons exist for believing in the resurrection. In the verses that I've just read, Paul gives us many reasons to believe in the resurrection of Christ, and he hints at several other reasons as well. And so I want to invite you to see some of those. First reason that Paul gives us is the empty tomb. Notice how Paul reiterates and presents as a matter of historical fact that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day. And each of the gospel accounts present Jesus' tomb as empty. This is a key point. Consider John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre. And she seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. And then she runs, and she comes to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Now, place yourself in the shoes of the Roman authorities for just a minute. If your credibility as an empire was on the line because you had been warned about a possible conspiracy and because you agreed to place a guard at the tomb of an executed Jewish criminal, but then you heard reports that his tomb was found empty, what would you do if that report was patently false and it wasn't true? Well, it's very simple. You'd produce a body. Even months later, you would produce a rotting body. You would produce bones. You would show the world something. You would say, don't listen to those fools. Here's the body of Jesus. We've had it all along. But friends, that never happened. In fact, the opposite happened. Matthew chapter 28 records it for us in verses 11 through 14. Behold, some of the watch came into the city and they showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. And so the very fact that the chief priests and the Jewish elders conspired to come up with a story For the empty tomb of Jesus is this. It's an admission by even the enemies of Jesus that his tomb was found empty. Friends, if Jesus really died on the cross, 
And if Jesus was really buried after that death, and if his tomb was really found empty, then what are the remaining options for what happened? Well, either the disciples made this story up and pulled off a conspiracy for the ages, or Jesus rose again just as he said he would. So I wonder, did the followers of Jesus make up the stories of the resurrection? Were they behind a grand conspiracy? Well, let's assume yes for just a moment. Let's assume that the disciples and the followers of Jesus fabricated the resurrection stories. Immediately then, we must ask the question, why? Why didn't they choose a message about Jesus that was more likely to be believed by the people of their day? You see, in those days, the Greek philosophers didn't at all believe in the concept of the resurrection. In fact, if you'll remember in Acts 17, what did they call Paul when he preached the resurrection? They called him a babbler. Think crazy uncle. They mocked him when he preached about the resurrection from the dead. The Jewish sect, as you know, the Sadducees, they they rejected the resurrection categorically while the more conservative Jews limited the idea of resurrection exclusively to a future era, not something that could invade the present. And so the idea for a fabricated story about the resurrection of Jesus, it certainly didn't come from one of the disciples' focus groups or strategy meetings for the establishment of a new cult or a new religion. Because it wouldn't have been likely to be received. Along with that, if they were trying to start a new religion during this particular time, why do the Gospels record women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb? You see, the testimony of a woman was not respected as it is in our culture today. In fact, the historian Josephus gives us an example of their sexism and their prejudice. Josephus writes this, Let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Let's just side note, Josephus would have been canceled in our our culture. Um, But that was the world in which they lived. And so if the disciples were trying to establish a new religion, would they not have arranged for highly educated and widely respected men to be the first witnesses to the empty tomb? Listen to this man who's widely respected in our culture. And so the way that the scriptures themselves depict the resurrection, this demonstrates decisively that the story didn't emerge from a conspiracy meeting for the establishment of a new religion. Rather, the story is presented with all of its seeming weaknesses, even presenting its main characters negatively sometimes because it's not fabricated, it's true. And so there's this matter of the empty tomb. That's the first reason that Paul gives us. But there's a second reason. There's fulfilled prophecy. Again, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul claims that all of this happened according to the Scriptures. That is, it was in fulfillment yet again of the prophecy that was laid down in the Old Testament. Specifically, I'm thinking of the most famous one in Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before the Lord Jesus came to this earth in human flesh. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. 
and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. You see, Isaiah envisions a Messiah who would suffer as an offering for sin, and then having suffered for sin, he would live again. He shall prolong his days. And so there's fulfilled prophecy. There's a third reason. There's witnesses. Notice also that the tomb wasn't merely empty, but that the risen Christ was actually seen after his resurrection. This is an important development in the story because if he were never seen after the empty tomb, we would assume that the body of Jesus just decayed somewhere else. However, if individuals claimed to have seen him, but yet the tomb wasn't actually empty... Then we're dealing with one of those stories that comes out of Alabama where someone saw Elvis in a diner again. You see, it's the combination of an empty tomb plus his appearances to witnesses. It's this combination that makes for a powerful reason to believe in the resurrection. Look at the list of reasons that, or witnesses that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15. The first one he lists is Peter, Cephas. He denied Jesus three times. Then he ended up preaching the gospel. What happened between his denial and his powerful preaching on the day of Pentecost? He saw the risen Christ. The twelve are referenced in verse 5. Even the most skeptical of all of us has to admit that at the very least that these twelve disciples really at least believed that they saw and interacted with the risen Christ. You see, these men, though, did not claim to have merely seen a vision of Jesus. They claimed to have seen Jesus himself. Their writings claim that they touched him. See John 20, where Thomas touches his hand and his side. See that Jesus ate food in their presence after his resurrection in Luke 24. Were they lying? If their interactions with Jesus after his resurrection weren't a vision and they weren't some sort of a hallucination, then perhaps the twelve were lying about what they saw. Remember, though, that each of these men, with the exception of Apostle John, each of these men went on to die martyrs' deaths for their insistence that Jesus is the risen Lord. The historical record tells us that Peter was crucified upside down while others were stoned or decapitated. Would these men have been willing to die for lies? Oh, but, but Pastor Dave, we now live in the post-9-11 world. And this martyr argument just doesn't hold water anymore. I mean, we've heard virtually countless, of, uh, countless stories of Muslim terrorists who martyr themselves they blow themselves up. They, they fly airplanes into buildings. And, and you aren't claiming that their deaths somehow validate their beliefs. And so why do you do it with the apostles? Two prominent authors on the resurrection, Habermas and Lycona, they say this. There is an important difference between the apostle martyrs and those who die for their beliefs today. Modern martyrs act solely out of their trust in beliefs that others have taught them. The apostles died for holding to their own testimony that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. Contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. The disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be either true or false. The disciples died for a message that they themselves helped to initially proclaim. I don't know about you, but the moment that they brought out the cross 
or they brought out the sword to cut off my head or rocks to crush my skull. If I knew I had been lying all along, I would have said, just kidding, guys. Do over. But Pascal is right when he says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Not only is there this matter of witnesses or the 12, but there's this matter of the 500. In verse 6, Paul continues and he says that Jesus was seen by more than 500 people at once. And just in case we were still hung up on this whole hallucination or, or vision theory of this claim that people saw Jesus, well, they were hallucinating. Let's remember that hallucinations and visions are highly, one author calls them privatized events. I mean, how many times have you told someone about that crazy dream you had about a unicorn who got burnt to a crisp while playing hide-and-seek with his dragon friend only to hear your friend respond, no way, I had the same exact dream last night. You see, 500 people don't dream together. 500 people don't hallucinate together. But beyond that, notice how Paul describes these people. He says, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but, present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul is saying, most of my sources are still alive. Guys, go, go check out my claims. Ask them what they saw. Verify for yourselves. You see, you don't invite people to investigate your claim if you're lying and nobody can corroborate your story. James was another witness the brother of the Lord Jesus. What's interesting about this man is that he didn't initially believe even though Jesus was his brother. But yet after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see this same James as a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And so what happened? How did James go from skeptical brother to influential pastor and eventual martyr? It's simple, really. He also saw the risen Jesus Christ and for him it changed everything. And the final witness is Paul. The author of the passage, verses 8 through 10. Last of all, he was seen by me also. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Friends, consider what happened with Paul. He hated Jesus. He was a religious terrorist that had others killed because they believed and served the Lord Jesus. And this is the man that's now saying, Jesus rose, I saw him. And so Paul and the rest of the scriptures give us many reasons to believe that Christ rose again from the dead. We're not given exhaustive reasons, we're not given scientific reasons, but we're given very good reasons to believe that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. And so notice how this world of resurrection then is a world of real hope. Back to verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. Now I admit this is a heavy sermon. Heavy sermon for this late at night. So let's talk about cookies for a moment. All right, let's break things up. Let me Come on back. Okay, let me get you back into the sermon. Let's talk about cookies for just a moment. I love them. Uh, we, we, we purposefully don't make cookies in my home very often because I don't eat cookies in servings of one, two, or three. I believe they were made to be uh, eaten in servings of six or seven. 
which of course is a problem, right? And so imagine with me this evening that you're making a huge batch of cookies. You mix up a huge batch of dough and you spoon some of the cookies out onto the sheet and you put that first sheet into the oven and it's baking and you pull it out after the proper amount of time. And while those first cookies are still setting, you put the next sheet of cookies into the oven and then you head back over to the counter and you have your spatula in hand and you serve yourself up one of those warm, homemade chocolate chip cookies. Can I get an amen, please? And as you sink your teeth into that cookie, to your complete and utter horror, you cannot get to the trash can fast enough. And your mind races. What happened? What went wrong? What ingredient did I forget? How how did I mess up this recipe? Now, I got to break it to you. There's more bad news. At that point in the process, you might as well throw all the rest of the cookies away. I mean, based on the first taste, there's no chance that the cookies that are still in the oven that are made out of the exact same stuff, that those cookies are going to be any better. You see, the first batch indicates something about the second batch. In fact, we could go so far as to say that the first batch guarantees something about the second batch. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Notice that word in verse 20, first fruits. Our text says that Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, speaking specifically of those believers in Christ that occupy the grave. Similar to our cookie analogy, wherein the first cookie was an indicator of what the rest of the cookies would taste like. In the agricultural world of the first century, the first fruits were the crops that indicated what the rest of the crop was going to be like. The first fruits were a guarantee. Hey, more crops are coming. And it was an indicator. They're going to kind of be of the same quality as the first fruits. And so when Paul says that Christ risen is a first fruits, he's telling the believers that the resurrection of Jesus is a preview and a guarantee of the sort of resurrection that we believers will experience in our future. Since Christ is a first fruits, his resurrection is also a pledge to us, and it is a guarantee to us of a full harvest of resurrections, so that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be raised physically just as Jesus was raised, and they will not be raised to judgment, but they will be raised to everlasting life. And it's only because Christians have this hope that we can even speak of death with a euphemism like sleep. It's not because we deny that death is real. It's not because we minimize that the soul has been separated from the body. It's not that we're minimizing that death hurts so much. No, we call death sleep because it's not final. For the believer in Christ, because of Jesus' resurrection, death has been stripped of its sting. And so go back with me to the little boy at the beginning of the sermon who didn't want his cousin to be mere fertilizer. As a pastor, I've had the honor of walking with some families through tragic deaths. And in each one of those funerals, I didn't have to stand up and help people try to come to terms with death and decay. I got to stand up at each funeral and say what I say at every Christian funeral. There's a tomb over in Jerusalem that once belonged to our Savior, and it's empty. 
You see, for those who are in Christ, his resurrection is a pledge that God will raise up us unto eternal life as well. And so when a believer dies and his body gets planted, if you will, when our body returns to the dust and when it begins to decay, that's a temporary state because this mortal body will one day put on an immortal body. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. You see, the body of a believer isn't mere fertilizer for future flowers. According to Paul, it's more like a seed that has been sown until the return of Christ. And when he returns, he will grant glorified bodies to all who have trusted in him. So we read the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible body must put on an incorruptible body. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal body shall have, been, shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, as we consider the present hour, do you understand that this world of resurrection does not have to look at a virus like COVID-19 that has claimed loved ones and church members and family members and say, well, at least it's going to thin out the herd a little bit, which is both natural and needed these days. While knowing in their hearts that can't be right. The world of the resurrection doesn't have to say of genocide. Well, the human race will be stronger as a result of eliminating the weak, I mean, I guess this is just a form of survival of the fittest at work while, while knowing how wrong that is. And it doesn't have to say to death, you are my friend. And it doesn't have to say to the dying, buck up. Rather, the world of the resurrection says to death, rise up. And so why would I preach a sermon like this on your first day back to university classes? Well, part of it is I got your minds fresh before you got weighed down with exams and papers. But there was another reason. I wanted you to believe, love, cling to, rest in, hope for, preach, and champion the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. But besides that, as I mentioned this morning, I used to sit where you sat and I didn't know what God had planned for my life. I didn't know that I would be pastoring people at 22 years old. I had no idea. I didn't know that I would get called to the hospital to comfort a dad that had accidentally run over his daughter with a pickup truck. I didn't realize that the Lord would drop me in a room with a family that lost their 19-year-old son to a car accident. I didn't know that I'd find myself sitting on a living room floor hugging kids as a family wept over the loss of their 18-year-old son who loved Jesus. 
What do you even say in moments like those? You hold them. You cry with them. And you softly tell them the only words that explode with real hope. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Along with that, I used to sit where you sit, and I didn't know. I didn't know then that so many of my classmates, my friends, and even partners in ministry that I would witness with on State Street, that they would eventually not just leave college, but they would eventually leave the faith as well. Some of my previous classmates are openly in same-sex relationships today. Some of my previous Maranatha classmates deny the truthfulness of the Bible. Some of my former Maranatha classmates are now professed atheists. But I want you to hear this tonight. They did not stop associating with Christianity because the resurrection is not true. And they didn't leave the faith because they found a more compelling worldview. They went out from us because they were never of us. And they left because they ended up tragically treasuring sin more than they treasured a risen Christ. They left because they heard the message again and again and again, and it never broke into their hearts. I'm not saying that I've never faltered in my faith. And I'm not saying that I have never wondered if Christianity is really true. In fact, I have. But each time I have had doubts, after a moment or a season of wrestling, here is the truth that I cannot get away from, that I come back to time and time again, that has become more and more precious to me year over year, and that is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so I leave you with this question tonight. Which world do you believe in? The world of no resurrection? Or the world in which Jesus Christ has conquered death? Let's pray. Father, though the consequence of our sin was just. Death is our enemy. And your son, Jesus Christ, is a glorious Savior. Father, if there are students in this room that are doubting their faith or doubting the faith, use the truth of the resurrection to strengthen them in these moments. There are students on the fence. Open their eyes through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the convincing work of the Spirit. There are students here tonight that have never come to Christ. Draw them to this Savior. God, I don't know how you'll use this sermon in the hearts of your people, but please use it. Would you just keep your heads bowed for just a moment? This is not my custom, but I simply want to ask a question. Who would say, Dave, 
God is working in my heart tonight in some way. And I just want to make that known to you and to the Lord as we pray. Dave, God is working in my heart in some way. Is that you? Would you just slip your hand up quietly in this room? God is working in my heart in some way. There are so many hands up tonight. What I want to ask you to do, Dr. Ledgerwood is at the piano. I'm just going to ask him to play maybe two verses of a song. I just want to give you some time to pray. I want to give you some time to think. If there's a spiritual battle going on in your soul, and if the Spirit of God is at work, say yes to him.